Mark. We're continuing our series within the series, Signs of the Times. In our text today, Jesus is wrapping up what has become known throughout history as the Olivet Discourse. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. He's talking to uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the four original disciples that we met way back in chapter 1. He's sitting there looking across into Jerusalem. He can see the temple from where he's sitting. He's surrounded by fig trees. You remember Bethany and and Bethphage were two cities named House of Figs and House of Unripe Figs. So he's sitting there talking to these men. And we're going to spend one more week next week on this Olivet Discourse as we wrap up Jesus' final words on the last days and what he has to say about the end times before we dive into a few. We're going to take a little break before we dive into chapter 14. In fact, on the first Sunday in August, as we take communion, I, I have a, a sermon I'm kind of working on right now about judging ourselves rightly, what that really means, and the attitude in which we take communion. Um, how many of you, some, someday, some Sunday mornings you wake up, you don't have the best attitude, right? Yeah? It's I got to go to church instead of I get to go to church. And sometimes we, we also, we harbor sin in our lives. We have secret sin and things like that that we don't deal with. And so going to address that on Sunday morning, the, the way we take our communion and, and the Lord's Supper. I think it's a very important thing that, that we understand, and I think it's for us today. But uh, today we are beginning to round out what is taking place on, on the Wednesday of the Passion Week. Jesus has, this is like the longest day of Jesus' life in the, in the Gospel of Mark. He began the day going into Jerusalem and going to the temple and seeing how beautiful the temple was, if you recall. It was a beautiful sight to see. It was one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And Herod the Great had made it a beautiful temple. And inside that temple were people who were taking advantage of the people of Israel and, and then they come to Jesus and they have all these questions for him and he is constantly harassed by them and unable to teach until finally they all are satisfied and he, he does teach the people for a little bit then he, he gets up to leave and they, they go and they sit on the Mount of Olives and then chapter 13 began. And now here we are in verse 28. If you will stand with me for the reading of the word this morning. And if you don't have your Bible, we'll have it on the screen for you. It says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You may be seated this morning. It's the Word of God. I've titled today's message, Signs of the Times, Part 4, of course, but not even the angels know. We often think about angels and we... Paul warns us in Colossians to not have a, an unhealthy obsession with them. Some in the early church had even begun to worship angels, to 
ascribe to them certain things, certain gifts, almost as if they were the Greek gods. And by the time you get to Jude, Jude talks about those who revile or blaspheme angels, almost as if he's, and the word he uses there is almost as as if he's insinuating people thought they could order angels around and tell angels what to do. They're not our army, they're God's army. And yet even still, with all their authority and all their heavenly power, they don't know the day or the hour the sun will return. In fact, Jesus will go on, he says, not even the sun knows. And we'll dive into what all that means. But he's talking about what it means to live in the last days. And to live in the last days, if you're taking notes today, I did have some homiletical points for us. I haven't done that in a while. I thought I would spice things up a little bit and, uh, and add them in this week. Um, but the one point, the one thing that I hope you take home with you this week is simply this. To live in the last days... The believer must understand how to react to God's actions. Many times God does things in our lives and we say, that's not fair, that's not right. God might allow something to happen and we say, where is your justice, God? God might heal one person and not heal another and we say, well, how is that? How is that fair? I remember growing up, my grandpa got cancer. And one of my best friends, a guy by the name of Brant Parsley, we're still close. His grandfather got cancer. Almost the exact same kind of cancer. Both went through treatment. Brant's grandpa got better. Mine died after a few years. And I remember thinking, where is your justice on that, God? My grandpa's cooler. Right? I mean, what kid doesn't think that? My grandpa's better. My grandpa was one of my heroes. He fought in Korea. He had a bronze star. He was, he was Captain America, was my grandpa. I didn't think too much of Brant's grandpa because I didn't know Brant's grandpa like Brant did. But and yet, when that happened, we said, God, where, 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 what, what are you doing here? And to live in the last days, as a believer, we have to understand what that means, how to act or react towards God's actions. The thing about the last days is that it seems unclear. Much of it seems like we don't really know this or we don't know for certain that and so on. The Bible's not a crystal ball. It's not a horoscope. It's not some manual for deciphering the nightly news, though there are many Christians who try to treat it that way at times. But that's not what we are to do. Things become more clear as we read. Things become more clear as we study. And as time goes by and we see things unfold as God's mysteries are are revealed to us. And I do believe we're living in the last days. Maybe not for some of the same reasons as other people. Some people look at the the book of Revelation and they they find the book of Revelation behind every corner. Right, I remember as a kid hearing somebody preach that a certain thing, and I don't even remember exactly where they were getting this from, but they tried to say that there was an Apache helicopter in the book of Revelation. No, there's not. They weren't invented yet. And John, they were, they were trying to say, well, John was just trying to write about things he saw and put them in terms he knew, and, and that's what he was doing. No, I, I don't necessarily think he was doing that. I actually had a friend one time. I grew up in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s was when I was in high school. And so that was the time of left behind culture. Remember that? Some of you definitely do. You read all the books, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk more about that as we go this morning. 
But I had a friend who was obsessed with the end times and professional wrestling. And can I tell you, that is a weird combination for theology. I remember riding the bus with him on a trip and he tried to tell me, no, Jeff, the four horsemen of the apocalypse really is. It's Ric Flair. It's Arn Anderson. Because they had a stable of guys they called the four horsemen. Because think about it, man. Everybody knows who they are. How many of you today knew who I was talking about? Wes. Right? One person. Right? That clearly not the same thing. We have to be careful of that. We have to be very cautious to not try to force the scripture in where it's not. At the same time, the believer does not walk in darkness. The believer has God's word, as, as David said, it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we believe that. Amen? We believe that. In doing that, the believer has to understand how to react to God's actions as the time draws near. And the first thing, the very core thing, the very first thing on our list is learn. We have to be willing to learn. To say, hey, I don't know it all. I don't have it all figured out. Verse 28. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. He said, learn. The literal Greek there is, learn a lesson from the fig tree. But it's important that we not miss that word parable and why the translators use it. Parables, if you recall from way back when we were in chapter 4, parables are a form of judgment after those who are, a, a form of judgment of those who refuse to what? Learn. They don't seek after truth. They don't want truth. They weren't the ones who followed Jesus into the house that day when he told the parable of the sower and, and said, hey, what did that mean? They didn't care. They were under his judgment. When he explained it to the disciples, he said, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, they don't want to learn. To not know the parable of the fig tree is to not know the signs of the times. To not know what to look for. And it's a judgment upon the person who refuses to hear the words of Jesus. The person who refuses to learn. So, He tells the disciples, just like he's telling us today, learn, learn from the parable of the fig tree. Learn, don't be ignorant. Be teachable. Do not remain in denial. The phrase I often hear is adapt or die. And that is very true when it comes to the last days. We must learn. What is it that that is happening? How should we react Now, when we see this, fig trees were not like other trees in that area. Most of the trees in Palestine in Jesus' day, they were evergreen. So when Mark is writing his, he's talking very specifically about the fig tree. Luke, when he writes to Rome in his gospel, he he says, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. Because in Rome, their trees are a little bit more like ours. They turn red and orange and green in the fall. And they all begin to lose their leaves. The fact remains, when fall would hit, the fig tree would lose its leaves. And in the spring, the sap began to rise up in its limbs and the branches. And leaves would begin to be produced. Its branches have become tender. 
The Greek word is hapolos, and it means they began to sprout. And I mention that because it's important. Hapolos. They begin to sprout. Jesus says they put forth its leaves. And when he, he, he uses these certain words, it's very fascinating, puts forth, the Greek word is ekphun. It means it produces or comes out. This is birthing language. The tree is giving birth to its leaves. Hapolos ekphun. That's, that's what he's doing. He's making a very clear Old Testament allegory about the last days. In fact, it's a phrase that comes up very often as you study these things. Birthing pains. Sound familiar? Some of you who are here on Wednesday nights say, yeah, that, we've talked about those. We'll get more into those in a moment, but we have to understand something here. We have to understand that as we read this passage, Jesus is not using the fig tree as he has in the past as a representation of Israel or the temple or the leaders, or anything like that. The fig tree, in this sense, represents a fig tree. It's very clear about that. And the passage of time. Earlier, he had cursed the fig tree, and it was all a way to speak about the temple, and how it was gilded, how it was on the inside, how it was rotten, how it was decaying from the roots up. Much like the temple had people inside it who were ruthless, and then making it into a den of robbers. Jesus is not doing that here. He's appealing, actually, the wording he uses, he's appealing to their common sense, their ability to learn. He says, you know that summer is near. That word know is going to come up several times throughout this message. In fact, the word Jesus uses is a very common Greek word, gnosto, and it means simply know, to know. We're going to see it pop up a few times, like I said, and here it's, it's gnoskete, is the tense that he uses. It's common knowledge gained through the senses. Well, that sounds a lot like a modern phrase, common sense, right? How many of you know it is common sense when the leaves are going to start turning orange and red in a few months, winter is coming. Common sense, right? We live in North Dakota. That's the biggest duh moment. When people go, it's, it's getting cold and it's November and you look at them and go, oh, really? It's getting cold? Right? Springtime comes around and, and starts to get a little bit warmer and you start to see green things on the tree and hey, summer's coming. Really? You think? So Jesus is saying here, it's common sense. He's saying everyone pretty much knows this if they look at the fig tree and you will know the time and their signs in the same way. The time by the signs, excuse me. As the last days approach, the believer understands how to act or react to God's actions because they have learned what to look for. It's become common sense to them. When the sun goes black, we talked about this last week, and the moon can't reflect the sun, and there's meteors falling from the sky, and everyone's going, what's happening? The believer says, well, it's common sense. We're at the end of days. Right? They learn this. We learn this. Now, if they choose not to learn, 
That's another thing. If they choose to not stay ignorant, though, but be prepared, they're adapting, they're growing, they're learning. And that's what the believer is to do. And if they're prepared, if they are learning, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be looking. And that's verse 29. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Even so, you too, when you see. The Greek word for see is idete. When you recognize, when you watch. In other words, when you are busy looking and you see these things happening. Well, the question then becomes, well, hold on. What are these things? Because he's talked about that quite a bit. He's went back to these things, these things. Well, when we look at Matthew's gospel, he actually breaks it into two sections for us. In Matthew 24, 8, he says, But all these things are merely the beginning of birthing pains. Jesus had listed those beginning birth pains out. He said, Many will come in his name, misleading many Wars and rumors of wars, nation rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. Those are the beginning of the birth pains, he says. And then there's this time that seems to happen, this great apostasy where false prophets rise up. They deceive many. The, the lawlessness is even more multiplied. The love of many will grow cold, he says in verse 12 of Matthew 24. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And the gospel is preached to the world. Then Matthew continues and Jesus says again, these things. And it's a whole other list he refers to. This is things that I would say happened during the great tribulation, the abomination, abomination of desolation, intensified persecution and tribulation, what we call the great tribulation, that second three and a half years, even more false Christs, more false prophets who are going to show even more signs and more wonders to deceive the elect if possible. I think it's very interesting as I was looking at this this week, in the beginning of the birth pains, how many does he deceive? Many. In the second, during the birth pains, how many does he deceive? How many does he deceive? Nobody. Because it's not possible. They're the elect. If possible, which means it's not possible, to deceive the elect. What's the correlation there? They've learned. These were the people during the beginning of the birth pains. They were tricked. They were bamboozled. But they've learned and now they're looking and they see, hey, we got deceived and now we got left behind and not going to be so easily tricked the next time around. I missed the rapture. I missed the, the beginning of all of this. But now when we see these things happening, we know better. Jesus says, recognize he is near right at the door. That word recognize, again, Greek word gnosto. Understand, know, know these things. When we see the beginning of the birth pains, he's on his way. We call that the rapture, the beginning of the tribulation. Time's getting short. But when we start seeing the actual birth pains, he is near. He's coming back. Touchdown on the Mount of Olives. He's right at the door. We blow past that phrase sometimes, but think about that statement for a second. He's at the door. You know, I don't know about you guys, but when somebody knocks on my door and I'm expecting them, I have a good feeling. Somebody knocks on my door and I'm not expecting them, not a good feeling. 
right? Can anybody relate to that? Because I am a dad with three small kids and a dog that goes nuts when people knock on the door. When Evie was little, I, I loved coming home because she was always looking for me and expecting me. Daddy's home, daddy's home. And she had this little speech impediment with her R's and L's and, and she was like, daddy, I'm wanting to you, you know. <laughs> it was so cute and so adorable. All three of my kids at one time, you, you love to see that. That's what the Christian is like. Or to be like, looking, waiting, knowing he's coming. But you contrast that with somebody just popping up and ringing the doorbell, what happens? Well, if it's at the parsonage, uh, Zeke, my Australian shepherd, goes nuts because he doesn't know who's at the door, and I better know who's at the door. I don't know who's at the door. Do you know who's at the door? And he's just yipe, 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 yipe. Kids all rush to the window. Who's here? Jen does this thing. My wife does this thing. It's like, I call it the flight of the bumblebee, where she cleans everything in 90 seconds. I say everything. She's back there saying, not everything. Because our bedroom looks totally different by the time company leaves. Right? You walk in there, how'd this stuff get in here? She is a blur during that time. One Saturday, not long after I had been made the pastor here, somebody stopped by late afternoon, just banging hard on the door. Jeff Williams! Who is that? I walk outside, and it was somebody who'd been kind of a part of our church off and on, and they came by to, to spread some dirt. Uh, I say that allegorically. I'll let you make up what you want out of it, but came by to do that, and man, it terrified us, because who bangs on the door like that? And I'll tell you what, they were lucky they got me, because Jennifer's in the back. Well, I'm loading the 9 millimeter. I don't know what's going on out there, but... <laughs> Worst case scenario, if I answer the door scared, I've got a baseball bat or a huge Scottish claymore you haven't seen yet hiding behind the door. And I'm, okay, yeah, all right. I know all about Jehovah's Witnesses. Thank you. We'll talk later. Now's not a good time. Jennifer's just another bullet in the magazine. The same goes on in the kingdom, though. If we're looking, if we're paying attention we are not caught off guard by anything. We understand how to react to God's actions. We hope. In fact, we look forward with anticipation. I don't like the phrase, Daddy God, but sometimes you, you, you think when you hear those kids, Daddy's home. Man, he's coming. I get excited about that. In fact, I would say, point number three, we live for that. Verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Truly I say to you, we've talked about this a few times, this is something rabbis would say typically at the end of a lecture, at the end of a point they're making. Jesus begins with this because he knows everything he's about to say is truth. He's not going to exaggerate. He's not going to mislead. His, his words are truth. He's not going to stutter. He's not going to stammer. He knows what he's going to say and it's not something wrong. But what he actually says is going to cause some of us to rethink things we've been told for a long time. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What is he talking about? Well, how many of you have heard this teaching that this generation is referring to the nation of Israel since they're becoming a nation in 1949? 
Many, some of you have heard that, right? If you, if you haven't, that's okay. That's, that's fine. It's okay to raise your hands. It's, I've heard it too. It was really popularized by this guy named Tim LaHaye. Tim LaHaye was one of the co-authors of the Left Behind series. So in the late 90s, people got excited about this belief, this theory. Now, I'm not bringing up LaHaye because I think he's a bad guy, a false teacher, or anything like that. I think he's got some very good stuff. But here's the thing about the Left Behind series. Mostly was written by a guy named Jerry B. Jenkins. And he writes those books as soap operas. Let's be real. That's what they are. It's, it's, no, more, it's no less a soap opera than General Hospital or, or Professional Wrestling, which I mentioned earlier, which can also be like a soap opera. It's very much like that. There's all these other events happening, but there's this story that has to be propelled along. And in that vein, this idea of Israel becoming a nation in 1949, it actually became a common teaching that, well, in a hundred years, that the clock's ticking because this generation will not pass away. We're going to break that down for just a second here because actually in LaHaye's book, Are We Living in the End Times?, he lays out where he gets that idea, but he says he could be wrong. In fact, he gives three or four other options entirely. Most read the passage, and, and if they look at it, if they read where he's looking, he's looking in Ezekiel 37. We're familiar with that story, the Valley of Dry Bones, right? God takes Ezekiel, the prophet, out to this valley and he says, speak to these bones. And they do. And, and God creates this whole army out of nothing. The bones begin to rattle, shake, and all that. Well, at the end of that chapter, there's another phrase. Lahaye takes that whole chapter and he thinks it actually has a double meaning, which he often does in his, his eschatological, eschatological studies. He tries to say there's a double meaning. We read Ezekiel 37, we understand that is for the return of the exiles from Babylon. That's really what that's about. But Lahaye thinks it's more than that. Because at the end of that chapter... God says, my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd and they will walk in my judgment and keep my statutes and do them. Well, that's ultimately what happens, yes. But we would understand that promise is more for the last days, the millennial reign of Christ. And LaHaye even says that's very possible. But he believes that it's both for the exiles of Babylon and for the exiles who Rome kicked out of Israel. You see, in 135 AD, Rome kicked Israel out of their land, and they didn't get back there until 1949. They were exiles for a much longer period of time. In 1949, the United Nations, in one day, granted the nation of Israel back their land. And this is, this is where people start to tie that back. They go back to Isaiah. Isaiah 66 eight says, Who's heard of such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be brought forth through labor pains? Ah, there's a connection, right? In one day, can a nation be born all at once? As soon as Zion was in labor pains, she also gave birth to her sons. And a nation was literally born in one day, Israel. As Isaiah said in 1949, so LaHaye and others like him, they conclude that there is a generation after this that, that's not going to pass away, and therefore Israel's become a nation, the clock is now ticking. All right. The question becomes, what exactly is a generation? 
Jennifer and I were talking with somebody uh, a week ago who told us that a generation is 80 years, but with 20-year blocks. Some of you have heard of this. There's a new thing going around. There, the history repeats itself in, in so many times, and it's all in these 20, 40-year blocks, things like that. I don't know much about that. I don't, I don't chase too many theories that aren't in the scriptures, but but when you read scripture, there are different generational times sometimes listed. 20, 30, 40. Psalm 90 tells us it's 70 to 80 years. Moses writes, Psalm 90, for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to might, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and wickedness for soon is gone and we fly away. Now, we had Pastor Steve, Pentecost Sunday, Memorial Day weekend. He told us Moses wrote that, right? Moses also wrote Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, he's very clear that a generation is 100 years. So we have to ask, well, which is it exactly? If it's 70 years, my math isn't great, but since 1949, that would have put us at 2019, right? So we've passed that. In fact, if, if that generation saw it, then you would think at least 1939 to be 10 years old to see it. So it would have been actually 2009. Or does the countdown actually begin? And LaHaye actually posits this. He says the, it could have began when the Jewish people took Jerusalem. That's 1967. So now we're waiting, what, till 2057, 67? See, it gets confusing. We have to be very careful with this to not try and set a date. The rapture and the end times is not a get out of jail free plan. Right? When the world is starting to get darker and things are starting to fall apart, we look forward to this because Christ is coming, not because we're leaving. Do you understand? Truthfully, Jesus talking about this generation not passing away until these things take place, most likely what he's referring to is those who are seeing the actual birthing pains, those who are experiencing that seven year tribulation. He's saying it's going to come. Quickly, when the sun goes dark, the stars start falling, the three and a half year tribulations ongoing, that generation will not pass away. And we know that too because in Revelation says there will be, in Revelation 9, there will be those who seek death but cannot find it. So it starts to add up. We learn the signs, we look for the signs, but we do not live in fear of those things, but we live in trust, we live in hope, we live in faith. We live for Christ and Christ alone. If we're so obsessed with the end times, we forget the purpose. We forget to share the gospel. We begin to forget to preach and teach and love our neighbor as ourselves and all the other things we're commanded to do. If all we do in our church is teach eschatology and, and the last days, we might become a hope-filled church, but are we a faith-filled church? We have to know and live the gospel as well, that Christ died to save sinners it's a simple message, but so often it becomes background noise to so many other things. And we study in balance. We know that he's one day going to return for those he's ransomed with his blood, with his death. And he's going to reign over us as we reign with him. And so many other beautiful truths to be had as we look forward to our eternity future. We're able to have a full life now because we understand that we are to live ready. 
ready to be raptured or ready to suffer for Christ at any time. We can live as though Christ is coming back any second. We can live as though he's coming back in a thousand years. But if we do not live Christ-centered, gospel-advancing lives, they are wasted lives. If time is short or not, like we said last week, we still plant, we still prepare, we persist, we live for him. Amen? Everybody's awake, okay. We're able to look, we're able to learn, to live because we listen to his word. That's how we continue to react to what God's actions are in the last days. We listen to what he has to say. Verse 31 Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. One reason I, I brought in Tim LaHaye this morning is not because I, I think he's so wrong or I think he's a heretic, absolutely not. In fact, he actually wrote a book on marriage that Jennifer and I read early on in our engagement, and it's made a big deal of difference in our, in our lives. He's done some strong scholarly work, and, and he has built up the body of Christ in ways I never will be able to. But it's important for us to listen to the word of God, not just someone else. I hope you didn't come to church today and want the word of Tim LaHaye because that's not what I'm preaching today. And I really hope you didn't come to church today. Let's go hear what Jeff has to say because who cares what I have to say? What's the word of God truly say? That's why I try so hard to be an expositor of the word, to expose the truth of scripture, to exegete, to break it down for you because who cares what I have to say? I'm just a guy. But if the living God wrote us something, well, it's my job as your pastor to break it down and feed the sheep, give it to you. That's what I, I hope I'm doing today. We come together on Sundays to hear the word of God, to hear it faithfully preached, piercing our hearts like the two-edged sword that it is. And Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. That is a guaranteed thing. He says they will pass away. The Greek means they will go out of existence or simply just go away. And Peter reminds us of this in 2 Peter 3, but according to his promise, and he's referring to this promise he made this day on the Mount of Olives, he says according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Church, we won't know his promises if we don't know his word. And the promise is very clear. The universe is dying. And God's going to replace it. In Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. You might say one of two things. Hey, that's awesome. I never liked it here anyway. Or maybe you're going to say, what? All my stuff is there. Keep in mind that in Christ, our priorities are reset. And in the new heavens and the new earth, they are definitely going to be resetting our priorities because it resets creation itself. More than anything, though, his words will endure. And that's the real takeaway. He says, my words will not pass away. Christ is the only one. Jesus Christ is the only one who can guarantee this because he is equally eternal. If he is, in fact, God, and we believe he is, that his words will not pass away. In fact, just saying this to his disciples, by the way, if some of the religious leaders heard this, they would have been picking up rocks to stone him because he's putting his words on par with that of Yahweh God. 
who said in Isaiah 55, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth that will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Jesus says, yeah, my words, just like that. That's what he's saying here. When he says words, by the way, that's the word logos. It means the spoken word. It's the same word that inspires scripture. All scriptures God breathed. It's the word of God. It's what Paul told Timothy. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's the same thing Paul says when he told Timothy to preach the word. That's why he commanded the disciples, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. In other words, all my words. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Everything. We're to teach everything, he said. Why? Because it's his words. It's not just the words of a carpenter. It's not the words of a rabbi or a priest. The very word of the living God. We are to listen to that. And not just listen, but act upon it. Be moved by it. Be changed by it. In fact, that's what God meant when he told the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark 9, he said, this is my beloved son. What did he say? Listen to him. If we listen to him, then we're going to understand how to look for him, how to learn about him and live for him in the last days. And more than that, and finally, we will know how to lean upon him. Verse 32 says, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. But of that day or hour. Jesus isn't even being specific here. You catch that? I don't even know the day or the hour, okay? Like, of that day. He doesn't say on March 25th. Nobody go and call the district and say, Pastor said Jesus is coming back on March 25th. Just arbitrary date, all right? He doesn't say on this day or that day specifically. He just says on that day. And I don't even know the time. Could be before breakfast. Could be while you're enjoying your afternoon siesta or whatever. I don't know. He's not specific. The disciples asked him, they said, when and what? And Jesus' emphasis is, I don't know. But you remain faithful. As they learn, not on... They're not leaning on their own understanding, but they're trusting in his words. They're trusting what he's telling them this day. No one knows. You might think that word no is gnosto again, but ah, pastor threw a curveball. It's not. It's a different word in Greek. It's the word oiden, and it means it's not knowledge, but awareness. Having a specific piece of information and being able to see it. Now, Jesus knows it's coming. Jesus knows it's going to happen. And because he does, the disciples know it's coming and they know it's going to happen, but there's no actual awareness of the specific time. That's what he's making very clear here. He's saying there's no way they could even be aware of the time, but just watch for the signs. Because like the title of today's message said, not even the angels in heaven know. These are not just the angel messengers 
right? These are the angels that, that are in the presence, the closest proximity to the throne of heaven. Ezekiel and Isaiah both saw these angels in the presence of God. John sees them in Revelation. They're the ones that cry out, holy, 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 that we sang about earlier. What Jesus is saying is those even in the closest proximity to the throne room of God don't know when this is going to take place. And then he goes a step further. And he says, nor does the Son. But this becomes problematic for us. In fact, a lot of Christians don't like this because they don't want to have to explain it or break it down. Or what does that really mean? Maybe it means that Jesus wasn't really God. No, that is not at all what he's saying. There are some who believe Jesus operated not as God during his time on earth, but that he operated as a man in faith. This is called kenosis. This has been around since around the 200s. It is a heresy that's been struck down many times throughout the church and its history. It elevates man in order to, and brings down God. It says that Jesus was just a guy, and because he operated as a guy of faith, we can do the things he did. That is not the truth. And that's not what's happening in this passage. Jesus is fully God. We know this. We understand this. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Again, the Logos. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And he doesn't say that he stopped being God. John says later in verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, he's still God. He's just wrapped in a human package for the moment. Jesus, in his human state, he did have to restrict certain aspects of his divinity. This is what Paul refers to when he writes to the Philippian church. He says that Christ, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, you understand, Jesus could not expose all the aspects of his godliness all the time. He absolutely could not, or he wouldn't be able to maintain a physical human appearance. If Jesus exposed who and what exactly he was, you understand, you ever seen Indiana Jones? It would melt people's faces off. That's the power of his glory. That's the power of his holiness. That's the power of his divinity. People couldn't understand that. They couldn't fathom it. God told Moses, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And yet we know, if we read the Old Testament, we know there are times where God does appear as a human, as a man. He took on the form of man as he walked with Adam in the garden, as he ate with Abraham, as he wrestled with Jacob, as he appeared before Joshua, as he talked with Moses face to face. That's called the Christophany. That's where Jesus appears in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he does something similar, though more long-term. He's conceived as a child. He lives as, a, as God and man flesh. He's the God-man, the hypostatic union. And there are times he unleashes his divine nature, his true nature, when the Father wills it. He says, I can do nothing from myself as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He tells his disciples, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The Mount of Transfiguration, he's exposed to the disciples and they're able to see it. 
But he had to divine, he had to restrain that divine omniscience. And I believe because if he, if he didn't, well, it would have fried the human brain inside his body. Jesus would still, even knowing all this, Jesus would still know people's hearts, their minds. He would hear things they would say physically without actually being present. He would know they said these things. He knew plots. He knew the heart of Judas, which we're going to see in a matter of weeks. That's his godliness on display. One of the most powerful times whenever someone comes to him and says, Jesus, can you heal my servant? He says, well, yeah, I'll come right away. He says, no, you just say the word. And Jesus says in that moment, that person's healed and it was done. He shows in that moment his mastery of time, space, and reality. He didn't have to go lay hands. He just says it and it happens because he's God. And yet even then, because of the veiling that was going on, even then the son does not know the day nor the hour, only the father alone. To say he did not operate as God is foolishness. He most certainly did. He veiled it as he had to. And yet after the resurrection, Jesus resumes his full divine power and his glorified body and his full divine knowledge. Note what he tells the disciples. Prior to the Great Commission, he says, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. In other words, guess what? I know now. I know when I get to come back. And you know what? It's a shame we don't usually, and and even looking back, we have the Great Commission on our wall, but it's a shame we don't include this verse whenever we quote it because you know what he's saying? I I know when I'm coming back. Now you need to go tell everybody. You need to go make disciples of all nations. Teach them what I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go get my church ready because I know the day and the hour now and I'm coming back. That's what he's saying to them. In Acts 1.7, he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but he knows. By this point, he knows. Because all authority is now his. In this passage, when he says the Father alone knows the day or the hour, Jesus is, is also showing us the perfect submission that takes place within the Trinity. While he's equal with God, Paul made that very clear to the Philippians. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He submitted as he took on the form of a slave, made in the likeness of man, and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And it's at the cross where he makes a point, a path for us to salvation, that we might be righteous before God. And we lean on that. We lean into him with our faith. We rest in him. As we rest assured, he is God. He is sovereign over all things. That when the world is falling apart, and as we dwell, I do believe we're living in the last days. As we dwell in these last days, the believer knows and understands how to react to God's actions. We lean, we listen, we live, we look, and we learn. We do all those things because we trust him, we hope in him, we have faith as we grow in him all the more as we see the day approaching. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. But do you believe God this morning and take him at his word? Amen? Well, the rest of the world is going to dive further and further into chaos, the believer stands in peace. We understand the signs of the times. We understand God's actions and what they really mean. 
Today, many people worry. They have anxiety. They have fear. And who can blame them? When you turn on the news cycle, you know our news, they get clicks and shares and things because they're spreading fear. Share fear. I don't know how many instant messages I've gotten this past week. Pastor, did you see this about this movie? Did you see this about that movie? Spreading fear. They're trying to keep us from watching this. Maybe they are. But that doesn't mean we live in fear. I've actually mentioned recently how many pastors talked about fear leading up to the pandemic. But when it happened, they had to practice what they preached. Today I want to tell you, if you're still breathing, you have no reason to fear. God is not done. God is not done with you. And if you're wrestling with fear or anxiety, God has this on a global scale. Sometimes maybe you're worried he's forgotten you. I promise you he has not. If you're here and you're saying, you know what, Pastor Jeff, I really, I do struggle with anxiety. I do have fear. I see things happening and I don't know how to handle it. I can't process it. All I can do is say, Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, come quickly. And I, and I live in absolute fear. If that's you this morning, I, just, I would challenge you where you are. Just raise your hand. And if you see somebody with their hand up, go and pray for them. Maybe you have your hand up and they have their hand up. Go pray for each other. But as the worship team plays, we're going we're gonna to give it a few minutes, time of prayer, and then we're going to worship together. And if you see somebody or you know someone wrestles with this, just go, just go pray with them. We're church family, right? That's what we do for one another. That's how we love one another. So pray for them as we worship together today.